0: Bible. But on occasion it's helpful to step back and say, you know what, because the Bible's not laid out like a like a car manual, if I want to learn about a certain topic, I can't just look at one passage. So if I want to learn about the dashboard panel lights on a on a car, I can look at the car manual and go dashboard panel lights. But if somebody says, Well, what does the Bible tell about Satan? I can't just go, Oh, well, just, just read this verse. So so what happens is is over time as Christians and believers in the Old Testament would read the Bible, they began to realize that in order to compare Scripture with Scripture and to rightly, correctly interpret and understand the Bible, they began to feel the need to systematize certain doctrines or teachings. So in other words, if somebody says, what does the Bible teach about God? You can't just look at one verse. And so this began to be called systematic theology, or some people just call it Bible doctrine. And a lot of times... People are like, oh, you know, I'm I'm not into that theology and doctrine stuff, and it's like, no, way! you got to think about that, because what you believe is going to tremendously affect how you behave. So when people say to me, I'm not a theologian, I say, yeah, we're all theologians, just some people are better theologians than others because they have more biblical views of God. So this morning, we're going to talk about the Trinity, and it's interesting because in our culture The catchphrase is dumb it down, you know, so we have this for dummies, computer for dummies. Everybody wants to dumb it down so that, come on, dumb it down for me so I can understand it. Unfortunately, that's not a good idea when it comes to Bible doctrine, and especially when it comes to the Trinity. In fact, J.I. Packer said this about the Trinity. He said it confronts us with perhaps the most difficult thought that the human mind has ever been asked to handle. He said this, it's not easy, but it's true. It's interesting because I had such a blessing as I was studying, reading, and I've been teaching about the Trinity for so many years. But ironically, yesterday, literally in the midst of my study about the Trinity, the Jehovah's witnesses came to my door. (laughs) I was like, this is good. And I had a really nice time with two young men And tried to keep it non-confrontational And really just challenge them to think through things But it's interesting, the last two young men They came quite a while ago They both said the same thing They said, I don't believe in the Trinity Because why would God try to confuse us And leave us with something mysterious And I, I want you to think about that The Trinity is mysterious Somewhat confusing But you know I think I would be more troubled if God wasn't mysterious, if he was just like us, right? The Bible says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so high are his thoughts above our thoughts. I mean, doesn't it make sense to think that God's so awesome that for us to understand him, he's downloading from his hard drive to my little hard drive, and there's going to be some stuff that I'm going, whoa, that's, that's intense. That's deep. But the idea of the Trinity, I mean, to me, when people say, oh, men made up Christianity, who would make up the Trinity? It's so profound, it's so mysterious. In fact, theologians have often said, if you tried to fully understand the Trinity, you'd lose your mind. But to deny the Trinity, you would lose your soul. And that's why doctrine's important, because it can be the difference between heaven and hell. In fact, I literally said to these guys, I said, I admire your zeal, I'm so glad that you... You are zealous for what you believe, I said, but the book of Galatians says if anyone brings a different gospel other than the the gospel that Paul preached, he's under the curse of God. So I said, either I'm wrong or you're wrong or we're both under the curse of God, but we're not teaching the same thing. Now, the interesting thing is they're very clever. Jehovah's Witnesses are very clever because there's a lot of points of agreement. Oh, I believe that Jesus was before the world was. I believe Jesus died for our sins. But if you ever want to just cut to the chase, just ask them this. Do you worship Jesus? No. Oh, no. You only worship Jehovah. Well, therein lies a principal distinction between us and the Jehovah's Witness. Is Jesus Lord? Is he God? And that's no small thing. The Bible says in order to be saved, you must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you shall be saved. So with that in mind, we're going to start this study of the Trinity, and we're not going to finish it this week, but we'll come back to it next week. But I want you to pray. And interestingly, even praying right now is partly based on our belief in the Trinity because the Bible says that the Holy Spirit who comes to indwell believers is our teacher. And so we're going to ask God right now through the Holy Spirit to help us to understand who He is as we study the Bible and see what the Bible teaches about the Trinity. So let's pray together for a moment. God, our Father, we come to you through Jesus, your Son, our mediator, because you gave us the Holy Spirit to teach us. So would you open our eyes now and help us to take an interest in the Trinity, help us to believe it, help us to more fully understand, at least in shadow form, this mysterious truth that's astounding and wonderful about who you are, and may we be transformed as we behold you in your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, there's a little thing in your bulletin for notes, okay? This is not for birdcage liner. This is not for doodling. This is to write some things down. So if you want to take some notes, the first thing I want to say about the Trinity is that the Old Testament only partially reveals the Trinity. I don't think it would be fair to say Jewish people when they had their Old Testament, they should have known the Trinity. If you just read your Bible, you'll know that the Trinity is in the Old Testament. I don't think that's, that would be a fair statement. Now, it's not as though the, the Trinity isn't alluded to in the Old Testament, but to say that it's clear and they should have understood it is a little overstated. I really like what Benjamin Warfield once said. If you ever See any books by b B Warfield They're worth reading. Uh, he was a professor at princeton years ago, but but he said this he said the Old Testament might be like a chamber that was richly furnished but dimly lighted. So picture you're watching Downton Abbey and you're in a in in part of the castle that's dark, right? But you can tell there's some beautiful furniture in there. maybe there's just a little candle, so There's some things you could see, you sense that there's more stuff there, but you can't really see it. So when it comes to the Trinity, he says, the introduction of light brings into that chamber nothing which was not in it before, but it brings it out into clearer view, stuff that was only dimly perceived before. I think that's a good way to think of the Trinity. It was there in the Old Testament and, and, and partially revealed, but when Jesus came, it's like he, he, he turned the light on, and now things became much more clear. So the night before he died, he says, I'm going to ask the Father, and he's going to send the Spirit. And, and, and there was New Testament teaching that, that made us be able to say, oh, okay, now I see it much more clearly. But it's important to understand that, as Warfield says, the Old Testament revelation is not corrected by the New Testament. Jesus doesn't come along and say, you know how we said there's one God? <laughs> no, 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 that's not. It's not corrected, but rather perfected. And so what we're going to do is say, okay, if I was just reading the Old Testament, would I have any illusions or hint that, that there's one God, but that he exists in three persons? And I think it would be fair to say, yeah, there's some some allusions to that, and and I'm just gonna mention three of them real quick. Number one, sometimes in the Old Testament, God would refer to himself as us. I'm like, hmm, why would he do that? In Genesis chapter one, God says, let us make man in our image. Who's he talking to? Now, Jewish people, and some people would say, well, he was simply talking to his heavenly council of angels. So he says to Michael and Gabriel, hey, let's make man in our image. And while that's possible, I think two problems with that is, number one, angels don't have any creative power. So for God to say, hey, why don't you let us make man, right? Since when do angels have the capacity to speak forth and create? Secondly, we're not made in the the image of angels, nor are angels ever said to be made in the image of God. So for God to say, let us make man in our image, seems to me that he probably wasn't talking to angels. Well, then who was he talking to? Now we don't want to naively say, see, that proves the Trinity, because us could be two, us could be ten, but it begins to allude to it. But then secondly, if if you've ever read through the Old Testament, you'll frequently see a reference to what's called the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. Then the angel of the Lord showed up. And sometimes the angel of the Lord will do stuff that you'll go, that that being, whoever it is, seems to be God. This, this, This guy shows up on numerous occasions. Like when Jacob wrestled with a man in Genesis 32, he says, I just saw God face to face. When Joshua confronts this stranger Who's walking around Jericho? He said. The, the, the stranger says, "I'm the captain of the Lord's host. Take off your shoes because the, you're standing on holy ground." And so we begin to see that this this angel of the Lord appears to be a divine being. So when Abraham in Genesis 18 is talking to this angel of the Lord, we begin to sense like, wait a minute. He's talking to God. He's pleading with God. Would you, would you spare Sodom and Gomorrah if there's 50, 40, 20, 10 righteous men? And then Genesis 19 says, and then the Lord rained brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And you're going, wait a minute. How can he be the Lord and the Lord still in heaven? So the Old Testament is giving us some sense that God is a plural being. It's interesting because the, the young men said to me, you know, you guys think Jesus is God, the Jehovah's Witness. They said, just because Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Well, you know, sometimes he spoke of other Christians and he said, we are one. So see, Jesus isn't God. And I go, wait a minute. The word one, like any other word, can have a variety of meanings. Depends on how you use it in context. If I said to you guys, hey, we're one on that thought, what does that mean? He says, well, we agree. I said, sure. But if I said my wife and I are one, it doesn't just mean we agree it means that we're married and that God has said the two shall become one. And so when God says in the Old Testament that he's one God, even marriage illustrates that being one doesn't necessarily mean that you can't have a plurality of persons within one. Now you're like, wait, is he one God or three? But another illusion, and again, I'm just giving you examples. So God speaks in the plural, the angel of the Lord. There are some passages like Isaiah 48 that seem to give us some sense that, wait a minute, God is not just one person. He's one God, but not necessarily one subsistence. So look in Isaiah 48, beginning in verse 12. We have the Lord speaking. He says, listen to me, O Jacob, Israel, whom I've called. I am he, I'm first, I'm last. Surely my hand founded the earth God continues to go down, verse 15, I have spoken, I have called him. But notice what God says in verse 16, come near to me, listen to this. From the first time I have not spoken in secret, from the time it took place, I was there. So God's talking and God says, come here a minute. He probably wouldn't say it like that, he's not from South Philly. Come here a minute, stupid. He would say, come here and listen to me. But then look at the end of the verse. God then says this, and now the Lord God sent me. And you're going, wait a minute. God, you're talking, and you just said, God sent me. And then you said, and his spirit. His spirit sent me too. Wait, God's talking, but God sent God, and his spirit sent God? Now, again, would it be fair to say, well, they should have known the Trinity right there. And I'm going, no, I don't think they should have known the Trinity. But to then look back, once we have the New Testament, you could say, I think Warfield's illustration is brilliant. There was a a dim sense that you, you could see allusions to it. It's just not clear. So now that Jesus came, we have the New Testament. And the full understanding then that Jesus brought to us of the doctrine of the Trinity is extremely helpful. And so what I want to suggest is that as Christians, many, many Christians would have no idea how to prove the Trinity, even though you know, at first blush, you're like, oh, that's simple. Look at the baptism of Jesus. You've got Jesus in the water, the Spirit comes down from heaven, and God the Father speaks. That proves the Trinity. I'm going, no, that, no. That doesn't even come close. Because number one, someone might say, well, then what do you believe in, three gods? Number two, nowhere in that passage does it say Jesus is God. So that doesn't prove the Trinity. So the way that that we come to the, the doctrine of the Trinity, it's by recognizing that the Bible makes three assertions, that if you put those three together, you go, well, then he must be a, a triune being. And an easy way to remember these three assertions is, as I've just put it into the word, get, G-E-T, that'll be our little acronym, our little mnemonic device, G-E-T. Now, you don't need to write these down now, because we're going to develop them over the, today and next, next Sunday, but I'll say them first, and then we'll, we'll, we'll begin to, to look at them. Number one, God exists as three persons. Now, now that's important. God exists as three persons. And what, what I mean by that is eternally. There never was a time that God did not exist as three persons. The second one, each of those persons is fully God. And then the third one, there's only one God. If those three things are true, and I think the Bible teaches them, then that's why Christians believe in the Trinity, because God exists as three persons, each person is God, and there's only one God. And that's why historically Christians have come to believe that that there's only one God who exists in three equal and eternal persons. They have the same nature, but distinct subsistence or distinct roles. So, So you sit there and you go, huh, that's... Does the Bible really teach that? Now, what I want to do is I want to start with the T, because that's probably the easiest. There's only one God. Now, ironically, I frequently will ask Christians, do do you believe there's only one God? Because if you do, then you're called a monotheist. An atheist says, you know, there is no God. An agnostic says, I don't know, you can't know God. A polytheist says, there's a whole bunch of gods. And by the way, probably... The majority of people on the earth are polytheists. They believe in a bunch of gods, right? Or you're a monotheist, right? That doesn't mean you're a a, a saved Christian, but Jews are monotheists, Muslims are monotheists. It's just one God, right? Now you go, well, where's that in the Bible? A lot of times Christians are like, well, you know, it's it's there. Well, give me a verse. Hmm, right? Now, just by way of refresher, a, a... The classic one would be Deuteronomy 6. Any of you who know anything about Jews in the Old Testament know that in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one, the great Shema, the oneness and unity of God. There are no other gods. God will frequently say in the Bible, there's no one like me, nobody else. He alone is God. There's one God. Okay, you go, all right. New Testament affirms that. Ephesians chapter 4 says there's one God. James chapter 2 says you believe that God is one, you do well. So that's not a a, a hard one to to explain from the Bible. There's one God. So there's our T. Now the G, God exists as three persons. That's pretty important because in the history of Christianity, there have been frequent times where people have gotten away from the teaching of the New Testament and began to teach what the Bible would call heresy or false doctrine, and it's dangerous. The scripture says, in the last days men will depart from the Christian faith and pay attention to the doctrines of demons. In 2 Peter 3, Peter warned, false teachers twist the scriptures to their own destruction. And so when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity, when people begin to move away from that, they begin to corrupt the gospel, And they're Satan's helpers in doing this. And historically, this has been going on throughout the ages. In fact, I was really pleased that with these young men, I said, listen, you guys are young. And I want you to consider that what you're being taught as a Jehovah's Witness, that Jesus is not God. The Jehovah's Witnesses did not come up with that. Way back in the 300s, there was a man named Arius who began to take passages like John 3.16, which says, God gave his only begotten son, and Arius concluded, well, wait a minute. If Jesus is begotten, that means that there was a time that he did not exist. Therefore, God created Jesus, and then Jesus created us. So Arius began to deny the deity of Christ. And I said, you know, you can look this up in church history. This isn't new. But I said, over time, the, the believers and the leaders of the, of the, the Christian churches Gathered together to examine this assertion by Arius, and they said, Listen, that's false doctrine. Either you need to recant that or you'll be expelled as a heretic. And so Arius was expelled as a heretic because he denied the Trinity, thus dismantling the deity of Christ and, and falsifying the gospel. I said, Listen, all the Jehovah's Witnesses have done, have resurrected that same teaching in the early 1920s. They're, they're bringing it back under a new name, the Russellites or the Watchtower Society. So with that in mind, Christians have also been misled by other false teachings about the Trinity. One of them's called modalism. And that's why when we start with this, this statement, God exists as three persons. We need to think about that for a moment. A couple things that are implied in that. Number one, he eternally exists as three persons. He didn't, it wasn't like there was just the father gone. You know, this is a lonely business here, just being here for eternity. So I'm going to need to um, create some friends. So why don't I have a kid and, you know, create a spirit. God exists as three persons. These are distinct persons, and they've always eternally existed. Now, modalism taught this, that God didn't necessarily exist as three persons, but rather He reveals Himself as three persons. So, kind of like Clark Kent, God would go into the the phone booth, and change into a different outfit. So maybe one day he would say, I'm going to be the father. So he would have his, his long beard and say, children, more candy. You know, those are the people that go, my God's a God of love. He won't put anybody in hell. Like, like he's just a granddad going, oh, shoot, everybody, I, you know. And then the other day he's going, you know, I really want to be Jesus today. So he gets his robe on and he comes out and he says, blessed are you, come to me. And then I guess on a day that he wants to fly, you know, he puts on his dove outfit and he's going, I think I'm going to be the spirit. But see, modalism began to teach, and of course that's, that's not how they would look at it. But the idea is that God doesn't exist as three distinct persons, but rather he can reveal himself. Sometimes he's a father, sometimes you'll see him as Jesus. Sometimes you'll see him as the spirit. That's that's heresy. So how would I prove from the Bible that God exists as three persons? Well, again, you can't just do that from one verse. What you can do is you can show passages where all three of them are present at the same time. And that's where I would say the baptism of Jesus is good for that. So if somebody says, why do you believe God exists as three persons? Well, I would start by saying that these three separate Beings, whatever you want to call them, persons, or theologians used to call them subsistences, can all be present at the same time. So, yeah, that's a good one. Jesus is in the water, the Father is speaking from heaven, and the Holy Spirit is coming down as a dove. Okay, but that doesn't prove the Trinity either. What I have to do is really center focus now on the middle statement each person is fully God. They say, Okay, so wait a minute. If there's only one God and God exists as three persons, then then what do you mean each person is fully God? Well, then I need to be able to to take my Bible and say, this is why I believe Jesus is God. This is why I believe the Holy Spirit is God. This is why I believe that the Father is God. Now, most people wouldn't deny that the Father is God, right? I mean, if you're going to say you believe the Bible... I don't hear people say, but I don't think the Father's God. I mean, Jesus said, this is how you pray, our Father who art in heaven. So that was kind of easy. The second one, to me, is most critical, and that is to be able to take your Bible and say, this is why I believe Jesus is God, okay? And for some of you, you're like, well, um, uh, you know, I'm sure there's some good verses on that. And, and this is why... For many of you, when the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door, you just hide under the furniture until they go away, right? Well, the Bible says, as Christians, we're, we, we, we should know what we believe. We should be grounded so that we're not tossed about by every doctrine, that we're not led astray from our faith, that our children know what they believe. And those of you who are, who are growing and becoming spiritual leaders, Titus chapter 1 talks about spiritual leaders being able to use the Bible to exhort with sound doctrine, but also to refute people who contradict the gospel. So, the Jehovah's Witnesses show up and they go, give me your Bible. Oh, Jesus is God's only begotten son. What does begotten mean? Begotten means born. So, obviously, there was a time Jesus didn't exist. Oh, and by the way, did you notice in Colossians chapter 1, when it says Jesus is the firstborn of all creation? God created Jesus. And don't give me this stuff about God and Jesus being equal, because Jesus, when he was on earth, he said... My father who gave my sheep to me is greater than all. So Jesus didn't believe he was equal with God. He said, my father's greater than all. So you people who think Jesus was God, you're wrong. He was a God. And you go, yeah, well, get your Bible. I'm going to show you in John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And they go, well, look at my Bible. Because in the Greek it says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was a God. That's what the Jehovah's Witness Bible says. And so then we just go, well, ask my pastor. <laughs> so, so, so the guy says to me, and by the way, he goes, I got one for you, the young man. He says, I, last time I asked a Christian this one, he said, I don't know, but I got to go. So I'm like, let me have it. So so he opens to the gospel of Luke and he goes, the rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus and says, good teacher. And Jesus stops him, he says, why do you call me good? There's only one good and that's God. See, Jesus doesn't believe he's God. And I go, well, hold on there. Did Jesus say, don't call me good because I'm not God? Or did he say, why are you calling me good? There's only one good, that's God. So I'll tell you what I think was going on there is Jesus wanted to know from this young man, do you believe that I'm God? And I said I'll give you an example in John chapter nine. Jesus healed a blind man. He put mud on his eyes. He told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And by the time the guy washed and cleaned his eyes off, Jesus was long gone. But when Jesus met up with him some time later, he said to the young man who had been made whole. He was blind, but now he could see. He said, do you believe in the Son of Man? See, Jesus was drawing it out. Do you believe that I'm Messiah? Do you believe that I'm divine? And the blind man said, who is he? And Jesus said, I am he. And John chapter 9 says, and he worshiped him. And Jesus didn't say, stop that. I'm not God. Because Jesus is God. And if you want to set foot in heaven... The Bible says you must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you shall be saved. And so I would encourage you to say, you know, I ought to be able to show from the Bible why I believe Jesus is God. Now you're getting your pens out. You're like, all right, preacher, let me have it. But it's 1214. (laughs) So like Paul, I'm 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 torn between the two. The people up here will be like, go on. But the people down there, there's 200 kids and teachers are going, don't go on, Pastor Tom. So what we're going to do is we're going to come back next week, okay? You're like, oh, man. So mother used to say, send them home wanting more rather than, you know, going on too long. are so going, no, brother, preach away. I'll stay here till Jesus comes. And I'm like, yeah. Me too, but there's not a whole lot of people that are feeling it with us, so they, they've got other things to do. But I want you to be in prayer about this and bring your friends or come with your questions because it's important that we go, hey, this is why I believe in the Trinity. And, and, and when I, as I close, I want to just give you a taste of why it's important. There are many reasons it affects my worship. It affects my prayers. People ask me all the time, is it okay to pray to Jesus? Okay to... What do you mean, pray to God through Jesus? Pray, pray to the, can I pray to the Holy Spirit? It affects the danger of false gospels. But one of the things that it does is the Trinity is a model for us of God's ideal experience of relationships. See, the reason that, I, I don't want to say the reason, God is love, God didn't become love after he created things. He always was love. But how can you be love if you don't have anyone to love? But God, the triune God, has always been in a love relationship with the three persons. They love each other deeply. And as we look and learn about the Trinity, we're beginning to learn things about God that he, he He delights to share with us, but he also wants us to experience so Jesus says in in John seventeen, "Father, I pray that those who believe in me will be one, even as you are in me, Father and I 'm in you." And so I really like what John frame said he's a contemporary theologian about the the Trinity in regards to the unity of relationships that God that God desires for us as Christians to have a a relationship of love with him and with one another, like in marriage where it's a mystery, that there's this deep, intensive knowing of one another and acceptance of one another. So Frame said it this way. He said the Trinity's not some incidental addition to the attributes of God. Like, okay, we're gonna learn. God is holy, God is love, and God is trinity. It's not some incidental addition to his attributes, but rather it's the doctrine of God as a whole and then he used a phrase, I was like, wow, I got to think about that. He said, God is giving us an intra-divine vantage point. And I was like, what does he mean by intra-divine vantage point? It's as though in the scriptures God's saying, come here, I want to show you what I'm like. I want you to meet us, me. Me. And we get the opportunity to see the Father, Son, and Spirit in their love and submission and honoring of one another. And so he says this at the end. He said, God gives us a glimpse of his own inner life. And I love that. I think that's awesome. Because who who would make up the Trinity? Let's make up a religion with one God, three beings, three persons. But rather, this is who God is. And it's our privilege that... That in time and space he revealed himself and holy men of God recorded these things and we have the privilege through the Holy Spirit to worship God in three persons blessed triunity so be praying that we as Christians will grow deeper and, and, and be founded but that we might call people to Christ because every one of the members of the Trinity has a part in your salvation the father planned it as he chose you The son purchases that he died on the cross and the spirit of God applies it to our lives as he brings us to faith and enables us to be sanctified and to walk with God in the power of the spirit. So join me as we pray and over the weeks to come, worship our triune, awesome God. Father, thank you so much for the Bible. Thank you that you revealed yourself as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit one God. We praise you. We thank you that your son Jesus shed his blood for our salvation as Austin led us to worship, partake of Christ. And may we grow strong in our faith and may we marvel at your mystery and greatness as we love you for who you are and what you've done for us. We give you glory, dear Father, and we ask these things In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week. We'll look forward to seeing you all next week.